You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 36. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find show notes, examples, discussion, and more. And send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. Follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. With that, welcome. I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. And uh, start us off with a little bit of news. We have a winner for our t-shirt giveaway. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. Yes. So Wade is the big winner. We have a little video of the honest pick in the uh, in Yeah, the check out our vine. That's right. So we'll have a link for that up there. Also, that's our second vine. The what? That's our second vine. So make sure you subscribe because we are killing it. <laughs> yes, that's we are. Right. Two in a year. Yeah. That's amazing. Hey, but they were important because they're always for a contest. They so. are always giveaways. Yeah, so we're that's... 100% on our con- our contest usage of our uh, vine account. So, uh, yeah, that's that's good stats. Um, in uh, other news, we got several reviews, a couple from the UK, which is pretty excellent. You guys rock. Yes, you guys are amazing. So we got one from Aruthastra, uh, Lou S. on Stitcher, Seb, S. Willowwood, The Dark Knight 15, and Free Apps Hunter. So guys, thank you so very much for taking the time to go over to either Stitcher or iTunes and leave us a review. I mean, when Batman takes the time out of his busy day to leave you a review. He's the 15th one. You know that, yeah, well, because the other 14 Batmans were busy, you know, the Joker is, you know, taking their time. Right. But, yeah, we really do appreciate him. I mean, it's it's bigger than what you guys could imagine, so thank you for taking your time to do that. And and this isn't really news, but I thought I'd ask a question because this is just kind of random. Um... If you work with, especially web apps, I'm sure that this is the case with other things, but if you're working with web apps, a lot of times you'll find that you're using a particular framework, right, on the front end, be it Angular or Knockout or EXTJS or something like that, right? And one of the things that I always struggle with, and you always make the decision you need to to get the job done initially, and then you circle back and you go crazy, but let's say that your front end or your, your UI tier, it requires data in a certain way. And it has to be formatted for that particular framework, right? How do you go about handling that on your middleware? Like if you're if you're writing the server side calls, do you write do you write your stuff so like let's say that you have data coming out and they're data tables typically, but this stuff has to be massaged into a format that that front end framework can use. Do you write your middle tier so that it returns your data table and then you wrap it with something else? Or, or like, how do you go about like, doing I that? I feel like, is this is this the same question that you, I think you asked the other day, like, well, you know, off mic, obviously, um, where you were talking about, like, which one do you write first, the, the your back end, or, you know, like, how, how do you mock the data that you want for it if it's for a front end piece? I don't I think, did like, I ask that? I don't think that was I me. I feel like you did. Like an example, if I understand correctly, might be like a date. Like if you want a specific date format, do you return it as a string from the server, or do you format that? Now, now date's probably a bad example. Yeah, that's kind of a weak example. What if it was like a grid of data? Yeah, like so. Like for instance, some components require that you wrap like a piece of metadata and give it a row count, a page count. You know what your start number is, but it's very specific to that framework or that component. Let's say that you're using some sort of component that you bought and it requires that you give this metadata back in a certain way 
And obviously, if you went and used another grid component somewhere, it would want data in a slightly different way. So if you decided at some point in time that you needed to rip that new that old component out and put a new one in, depending on how you wrote your, your middle tier stuff that actually goes and talks to the database or whatever, you might have a lot of rewriting to do as opposed to if you had just wrapped it somehow. It, it, it was just one of those right. things that came up that I was like... So I don't think you're going to like my answer. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm curious. I don't think I'll dislike it. I think uh, I'm, I'm just curious as to what you guys would say. Well, I'm, I'm going to say it depends. because I don't because, like your answer. Yeah, see, I told you. <laughs> because let's say, let's say, on the one hand, if you're talking about the UI has already been well-defined, like, like it's already been designed, you know what the end state of it should look like. Then, you know, I might, depending on the circumstances, start all the way at the database layer and then start building up from there. Like making the queries work and perform optimally and return what I want and what I'm going to need and then start building from there, right? But if it's the case where I'm kind of exploring, like, what do I want this thing to even look like, right? Well, I don't know what data I need. So how can I start with the data? I got to start trying to decide what I want this thing to look like. And in that case, then it's all going to be like hard-coded, just fake data, just to like get the presentation in place to see like, is that what I want it to look like? But once you figured that out though, at that point, do you layer it? Like, like, do you say, okay, the data table is obviously the data that I need, but then all this additional metadata how are you going to pro- how are you going what to What was the additional that? metadata again? So like like let's say that you, you said a grid, right? Like this grid needs particular things like a row count, a page number, um I'm trying to like, like the that's sorting. Gonna be like the that's going to be like those are going to be the trivial kind of things that you're probably already doing elsewhere. No, right? not necessarily because like in the case of a grid component or something, like there could be all types of things, right? Like what's the sorted column? What's like there could be several pieces of well, metadata. Well, what I what I mean back. though is that like chances are probably pretty good that you're doing similar grids elsewhere in an app and that same kind of metadata, you've already solved that problem elsewhere too. So the real the real challenge of this particular element is trying to decide a what does it look like and b what shape does the data come back in right and so those are the two things and that's why i'm saying like depending on the circumstance i'm going to start from one of those two opposite ends of the spectrum and then and then work okay so let me put it into a more i don't know where joe fits into this let me put it into a more concrete example and then i'll get joe's take (laughs) as well Let's say that, okay, you know that typically, if it, let's take a web API call for C-sharp, for instance, right? That's your endpoint that you're calling. And typically, you get data out, and that might just be a data table, right? Fairly simple. You called the database, you got some data, and it gets returned basically, you know, in a data table format. All right, now you have this specific requirement for this component that's going to be using that data. You wouldn't want to go into your web API tier and necessarily wrap it there because anything else that needs to consume that particular piece of data doesn't necessarily want all that extra chunk of metadata that doesn't work for you know another component and that's what i'm getting at Um, how do you separate that stuff out so i'm curious joe what what are you what are your thoughts on this yeah i actually had a a similar situation recently Um, i was working with some charting stuff and um, you could write a data provider for it and you would have a column named key and a column named value. And so I was kind of tempted to name the return from the server key and value because I could just kind of pop this thing right in there. 
but that's not descriptive. It's not consistent with the rest of the code base. So I ended up transforming it. But uh, I, I think that's kind of an example of the kind of stuff you're talking about where you've got a specific format you need to meet in order to get this component to work. And so where do you do that kind of rearrangement? Say you've got a hash table, but it needs to be an array or something like right. that. And uh, you know, I think my vote is to do it on the client, but uh, I'd be lying if I said that I never cheated. <laughs> it's it's kind of interesting. So like what you're saying is true. Now, in the case of what you're talking about, maybe that's something easy enough that when it gets retrieved from the server, it's easy enough to massage on the client, right? Like you could write some sort of provider that would automatically translate that. But in the case of something to where it actually needs additional metadata, right? Like, for instance, um, you have some sort of search that searches through a million records in your database, right? And this grid expects you to tell it, okay, well, we know this is paging, and you're on page 10. You need to know that, so that's going to come back in the metadata. You need to know exactly how many rows there were because you need to display, hey, you're displaying rows 50 through 60 of, you know, a million. So there's all this metadata that comes back. So now the question is, okay, you don't necessarily want to put that into that particular web API call unless you're going to make sure that everybody knows that, hey, every one of these endpoints, these web API endpoints here, are made specifically for this particular grid component, right? Um, so then that brings up, okay, well, how do you do that? Do you funnel this through something else so that you have like a proxy endpoint that, that you call that then calls some other method to go get it and then wrap it? You know, maybe there's a parameter that you pass in that says, hey, make this component. And that's the thing that's always the, that kind of bounces around. And I mean, we've been doing this stuff a while, but these are things that you run into all the time to where it's like, okay, I know we're using this component today. But in a year from now, when they say, hey, we want to switch to the, you know, component XYZ over here because it is so much better. If you wrote all your server side code to do things specifically for that old one, you now have a lot more work to go back and redo. You know, so yep. it, it was just one of those things that kind of came up and I was like, huh, I'm curious what these guys take would be on this. You know what, though, if you keep it consistent, like let's say you had an interface that you implemented in some sort of factory that would create it and associate that metadata, then you would have a nice way of finding everywhere that you needed to change, assuming that you were kind of swapping out all of the grids. Um, so so that's a nice use of um, the, the kind of tools if you're working in a language that has that kind of support. Well, that's a good point. Like if you made it a factory, even if you didn't switch out every single thing, right, it could just be another another instance in that factory that it creates, right? Like, yep. here's the old school component. It'll create that one for you. And here's the new new component. It's a nice take on it. It's interesting. Hey, it, so change the topic here. I totally didn't even think to mention this before. But, you know, this is the season. I don't even know if you realize which season this is. Like. Christmas? That's what everyone would say. And you're wrong. <laughs> it's Star Wars, man. Oh, <laughs> How did you not know that? So, so, you know, my, my youngest asked me this question and I thought like, wow, this is so relevant. Like what is a, a software developer's favorite Star Wars character? Huh. No one? Um, I'm kind of worried if someone says Han is the answer, even though it might be my answer. No, it is Java the Hut. Oh, nice. Uh. <laughs> I was thinking, uh, you know, Hans shoots first, asks questions later. Um, <laughs> uh, he's kind of moody. Java. The hut. You know he gets strangled, right? 
you know what? <laughs> you're, you're trying to like overthink this thing. Now. No, no, no. Java's dying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll be sure to let Oracle know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Your purchase of Sun was a total waste of money. Right. Um. But yeah, so that I don't know. I, I thought that would be fairly relevant for everybody, um, because it, it's one of those things that comes up, and you know, a lot of times it's just get it done as fast as you can, right? Because you have something that some deadline that you have to meet. Wow, I thought you were about to say get her done. I could, I could totally do that. <laughs> um, That's all we need. Uh, but well, speaking of questions, if you guys have any questions, you can hit us up at uh, comments at codingblocks.net. Uh, well, let us know if you want us to keep it private, though, because otherwise it's kind of weird. Sometimes we don't necessarily know if you want us to discuss your question uh, on the air. Um, so, you know, yeah. throw it out there either way. Yep. And Joe has some news here. Yeah, I uh, I mentioned uh, one of the episodes we were talking about um, kind of, uh, uh, I forget what the word is now, but basically keeping your posture straight, all that sort of stuff, ergonomic. Um, I was having some issues with the hands and I ended up having wrist surgery, actually, carpal tunnel release, so... I uh, thought you guys might be interested in. It's kind of an op- occupational hazard. Uh, at least it's common for people in our industry. So, um, yeah, I just thought I'd kind of throw it out there. I actually had it done right around the same time that Brooke Shields had both of hers done. Oh. So I'm, like, sitting in doctor appointments offices, like, watching her on TV, and she's got, like, this crazy cast where she, she got both of her hands done. So you're just like, like Brooke Shields. Ex. Yeah. <laughs> I have a newfound respect for her. Yeah. Exactly. And like I don't know how she's right. Because let me tell you, they told me that I would be back to work like that, you know, that weekend if I wanted to. Uh, and that was BS. Uh, <laughs> it, it hurts. I, you know, I'm still having a hard time like grabbing like uh, door handles and stuff. But, oh, really? Uh, I haven't been able to work. Yep. You had this done, what, like two weeks ago, right? No, three maybe. Uh, almost a month now, three weeks. Man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I guess I guess I have Star Wars on the brain because obviously when he said that he had surgery, I was like, dude, did you get like a bionic arm like Luke? That's right. Really? <laughs> well, yeah, his uh, his surgery looked a lot easier than mine, although I, there was no Bacta tank involved, which is nice. <laughs> although the, the irony is, is Outlaw's not going to see this movie for like another month. Nah, so. man, I'll see <laughs> it like in February. Yeah, so... He's all excited yeah. about it, but by that time, everybody Well, I'm else... excited because it's that much closer to February. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> you got to let the crowds <laughs> die down, man. Uh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I will say um, I haven't had any numbness or anything, and uh, now that I can uh, use my mouse again, I'm back to playing video games again. Uh, it's not so bad. So if you have any uh, questions or you want to talk about it, uh, I am very interested in that subject. I am curious, though. Did you change up anything? Did you change a keyboard? I know that you got the uh, vertical mouse. Is there anything else you changed? Yeah, the, the vertical mouse, everything else seems tiny now, so I'm, I'm totally sticking with that. Uh, I have been looking at um, keyboards still. Like, I just can't decide between a sculpt or a split. Um, mm. though, you know, the worst thing that came out of this actually was like I, I couldn't really play, you know, intense clicking or even like console games because my hand just hurt. Um, so I started playing Warcraft again, which, you know, so I'm back on the crack because <laughs> I just didn't have to click that much for certain things. Uh, and, uh, yeah. so now I'm, uh, yeah, I'm in trouble so and all my friends are gone. So if you guys still play and are on the server, you should, uh, let me know so I can join you. <laughs> so you didn't go for the Swift point GT wireless ergonomic mobile mouse. Uh, no, is that the one that was like the size of a quarter? It was the, it was the one. Yeah. It was the really small one that was like the the pen or pencil grip by the way yeah. after after we mentioned that i went back and watched some videos on it it's actually a really cool mouse well oh yeah by the way after we had mentioned that and i was putting the show notes together for this for that episode uh which if you haven't already heard that that was episode 34 where we talked about it but then you know because like one of the cool things that they mentioned about this was like oh it's the same 
um, this mouse fits your hand in the same position that a pen or pencil would. And I'm like, and at first I was like, oh yeah, when we were doing the recording, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. And then I remembered, oh wait, writing sucks. <laughs> it does. Like, your hand always cramp up. Totally. Like, I, can't, I can't write my name more than <laughs> once without it hurting. I'm so Good used point. to a keyboard now. So I was like, why would I want my mouse to be like that? That's, That's a horrible point. idea. <laughs> I wrote a check the other day and it was horrible. Just doing that. I was like, ugh, you I got to write out the... the the dollar amount in words. <laughs> and I couldn't remember. I actually had asked my wife. I'm like, I signed it on the front. I feel like I should sign it on the back, but I can't remember. Did, was it like, you know, carved in stone or something? Like, why? These doctor's offices, man, they are ancient and they're, they're, all their websites are terrible. It makes me feel really sketched out about going to these guys. It's amazing, though. Like, you would have been one of those guys on the prices, right? Like, doing the, the, the check thing. And yeah. they're like, you totally wrote that wrong. <laughs> yeah. So you get called out from a thousand people in the audience. <laughs> yeah. Man. I, I totally did have to tear one up. Uh, I, was like, I wrote the wrong year on it. I'm just like, oh, this is this sucks. Man, I, I can't imagine writing. I, I get upset if I go to a place and it even looks like they have some form of tap to pay and I can't tap to pay. I'm like, mm-hmm. what? What? Why do you have that device there? Like, uh, you teasing I, me. <laughs> I mean, I, I break down mentally inside. I don't like actually say anything. First world problems. That's yeah, what we have here. Pretty much. All right. <clears throat> what we got next? Okay. So I might have made a mistake or two. So uh, I don't even remember. I think it was episode uh, 35 maybe that like I we were talking about. Actually, it was probably episode 34. And we were talking about SSDs. Mm-hmm. And that new M SATA two, I think it is NVMe. Yeah, that Samsung put yeah. out, and I made a comment about like using that in a MacBook Air. But then I was like, oh man, I'm a moron. That the MacBook Airs don't use M SATA; they use like a variant of uh, PCI Express that looks similar to I don't even know the specifics. Of it. it looks similar to M SATA, but it's actually like a variant of Mini PCI Express or some uh, crap like that. And I was like. Oh, yeah, that one gets me every time. I forget about that. But then, also, in, like, the, you know, change log, yeah, if we could go back and, like, correct things, I thought about something, too. And, you know, not to call you out, Joe, but... <laughs> but he's going to do it. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> Prepare yourself. So, in episode 35, last episode, we talked about... Um, you'd had this tip of the week where you were talking about flipping the X and the Y when oh, yeah. processing an array and and at first you know like when we were recording it i was like oh yeah that, that makes sense and then like when it came time to put the show notes together i was like hold on i'm scratching my head and i'm like hey that actually i don't that doesn't make sense how would that prove anything because then i was thinking my life okay let's um, the whole premise was if you had a two-dimensional array and you know joe was uh supposing that if you were to Let's say that let's say that uh, you know how you how do you one of them is an X and one of them is a Y whichever one you want to choose like let's say for each X element there's uh, an it represents an array and you're going to address that as Y's right does right. that make sense All right okay so then uh, what Joe was saying was that like you know as you're processing that if you were to flip that and instead of doing a for uh, a for loop on and iterate through all of your X's and then inside of that, do a for loop and iterate over all your Y's, then instead reverse that 
and do your Y's first and then your X's and that would be faster. And at first, like, I was like, okay, I think I see that. And then it didn't make any sense as I was putting the show notes together. And because like what I really stumbled on was I was like, wait a minute, how can this be like any kind of performance gain? Like, and even in the, the conversation, like Joe mentioned like a micro performance, I forget exactly how he worded it, but I was like, man, current Ram speeds, like there's no way that that can make a difference, right? Like even if you're reading straight off of disc, like unless you're reading off some really slow disc, then maybe, but you know, and then it had to be like a large data structure that you're worried about. But I was like, what's a scenario where this really would matter? And so it took me a while and I had to research this, but what it was really in reference to that we didn't mention in the show was when it's a coordinate system like your display. Hmm. So if you were processing an image on screen, that's where it would matter. Yeah, you want to do these things sequentially. Right? So, so so rather than going so if in that case if every x represented a row on your screen and every y represented a column, what you what you don't want to do is go row by row down from the top left of your screen to the bottom of your screen and then start back up at the top and then work your way down. Instead, you want to go from the top left to the top right and then come back and go left to right, left to right. Think about the 90s when you would download an image. Refresh. Right? Mm-hmm. When you would download it, when you, were, when you were like looking at anything online in the 90s, right? Like it came in real slow like that. That kind of coordinate system, like if you think about his tip in that regard, then it makes sense. So it wasn't complete rubbish. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't at all. It's just that the I don't feel like we described it well in, mm. in that in that example. That was my worst tip ever. <laughs> no, I didn't think it was. I didn't think it was a bad tip. Uh, you know, like like, but it was just. And, and even on Allen's, there was another comment too. Oh man, uh, who was it that commented? One of the somebody commented on it in the. Oh, on Twitter. Yeah, why wouldn't you just do a for loop? Yeah, yeah, because because in in that same episode you had mentioned using a for each loop, and if you wanted to iterate over your over your you're in a for each loop and you're iterating over some collection, but you need to modify that collection, then instead you might do something dirty by having like another collection that represents either the end state or the deltas that you want to you know add or remove or something like that, and and that after you break out of your for each loop that you would then do Updated. the do yeah. the collection modification yep. and I, can't, I don't remember i'd like to give credit um uh, i could probably find it but, but yeah there, it was but, on twitter um you know one of the listeners commented in and said well if you just used a for loop instead of a for each loop then you don't have that um uh exception problem because specifically the exception is collection was modified enumeration operation may not execute but using a for loop you could do all of that collection manipulation it was mike mike DePaul. thank you yep so yeah that was excellent and it's it's absolutely true if you do a for loop then there's no enumeration that you're stepping through there's no next and all that kind of thing so because you're just referencing things by index at that point and it doesn't care right so So i felt like i felt like those were you know big enough uh like oops that you know should probably be mentioned yep they were good and yeah. you know what? Um, we should mention we got some really great comments, and we're not going to talk about uh, any or all of them. But um, 
We even got a poem on the uh, episode 35, or sorry, 34. So uh, if you guys ever uh, are bored on the internet, you should go uh, to our website and check out the show notes and uh, read some of the comments because they're very entertaining. Yes. Uh, All right. So, so let's do this. Yeah, now it's time to get into it. The 12-Factor app. Dun, dun, dun. Part four. Yes. So today we're going to be talking about the last three chapters of the 12-Factor app. Uh, dev prod parity logs and admin processes. So let's start with dev prod parity. Who wants to, who wants to intro us into dev prod parity? Sure. Uh, I can do that. So basically <laughs> the idea here is to keep development, staging and production as similar as possible. And when they say similar, uh, this is what I thought was uh, particularly interesting is they didn't necessarily mean like line by line or, um, you know, like necessarily this the kind of backend systems you're dealing with they actually mentioned three gaps specifically and uh, we're going to talk about those uh, right now uh, the ones they mentioned um, first was the tools um, so that's things like you know if your production website is using sql server you should be using sql server locally um, that's kind of the the common use case that you think of when you think about um, dev prod parity but the second case they mentioned uh, was actually time and that's in reference to there being sometimes uh, in some environments large gaps between releases. And so the code that's out in production that you might be doing support on could be months at, behind the code that you're kind of doing your day-to-day work on. And uh, that's a, uh, an example of dev and prod being different. And uh, the third example they gave was actually personnel, which is uh, cases where sometimes um, the people deploying the application aren't the people writing it. So there's kind of a disconnect between the people who kind of push it up there, do some clicking around and, and verifying if stuff is, is working like they expect um, and how they might see that differently than the people who actually built the system. So so I wanted to break this apart and, and talk about maybe backwards from how they had it and start with the, the tools, right? Because I found it kind of um, contradictory to some of the... It seemed... It felt like it was a little bit contradictory to some of the previous chapters where... Like all of a sudden now, as we're approaching the end and it's saying, oh yeah, remember how we talked about how you could abstract everything away before? Well, we want you using the exact same thing as what's in production now. Yeah, it's abstract it so you can do this stuff however you want to and be really flexible, but don't actually use that flexibility. (laughs) Which, Which I can't argue with though, because honestly, like every opportunity I've ever had, I want the same environment i want my environment that i'm developing on to match as closely as possible to what it's actually going to run on but it just felt like some of the other chapters where it's like wait a minute didn't we talk about having everything as a backing service that you could easily swap out and like why does it matter and now all of a sudden it's like yeah but make sure it's the exact same backing service yeah yep. i will say like i try and follow at least this part like if it, being that we do a lot of net stuff like i'll even try and run the full-blown IIS, right? locally as opposed to just the development server or SQL server. I mean, they, they've done a good job providing developers with their enterprise level SQL server. So you basically run a full blown enterprise database on, on your environment. And that is a way to almost guarantee that when something goes from point A to point B, it's going to be the same. Well, when it comes to IIS, I'm, I'm with you on that, but that's more of laziness on my part. (laughs) <laughs> and that's because as much as I would like to use uh, IIS Express or might like to use IIS Express because, you know, in theory it is kind of nice, but, uh, you know, a nice concept, but uh, the having to run 
you know, hit, hit F5 when I might not even want to spin up Visual Studio at all, right? Like maybe I'm only doing, uh, you know, some JavaScript development and don't want to use uh, Visual Studio at all. So like I don't want to have to open it just so I hit F5 to run IS Express or to kick off IS Express. So from a laziness factor, I like to use the uh, uh, full-on internet server. Yeah, I've actually had problems um, by doing that before because um, the IS Express is pretty good about, um, you know, not uh, having problems with different file types and MIME types, like, um, say, like WAF font files or, or um, if you do doing sort of downloads and you upload your site to a new server or version of IIS and uh, suddenly your downloads aren't working anymore or you're not getting your web fonts because of that little, you know, stuff you need to set up on the server there. And you may totally take that for granted and not know what's going on at deploy time. Yeah, it's it becomes a big deal. Like it, it, those little tiny nuances can mean the difference between downtime or, you know, a stable running site. So Yep. And um, they actually, there's a really great uh, table on uh, the 12factor.net website where they kind of talk about uh, traditional apps and 12factor apps and how they uh, different, uh, are different in this step. And uh, one thing they mentioned, uh, there's three things, but the first one is um, the time between deployments. In a traditional app, um, that can be weeks and uh, you know even longer if you're de- dealing with something like you know different versions of Windows or whatever. I guess that's changed a lot now, but... With the 12-factor app, you're really aiming for deploys every couple hours, if not more often. And so it's really important to keep your you know, your dev environment as close to production as possible and uh, basically pull master often. I'm curious, though, and I don't know that I saw anything in here on this, but in the case that you have a product that's running multiple versions in different spots, like could you even, like you have a customer that has a version out here, and yep. you have a customer that has a version that's not a twelve factor app at all, right? That's what I was going to say. Like, no, because does... these are all like web, like web, yeah. The twelve factor app, like a lot of these are written in the mindset that this is just a dot com, an internal right? application or something. Yeah, maybe not, maybe internal, but just you know, it, it's treated as a dot com. Is my point? Okay, but um, specifically, this section, <clears throat> excuse me, reminded me of a story that uh, I remember reading a long time ago and I went back and looked for it to find it. And uh, it was around how Facebook does their deployments. Now they have since changed greatly. You know, this was uh, an article written in 2012. So this is back when they were still doing compiled PHP. And uh, the, when they would do their releases, they would do several. um, I think it was like, I think the article said they did, uh, at least a couple a day. And then like the major ones were done once a week or something like that. I'll, I'll have a link, um, you know, available for you, but the, uh, um, their releases were like when they would, one of the cool things about this was that, um, back in 2012 there, they would compile all of facebook.com into a single file. Right. And that single file was 1.5 gig in size. Now, your Facebook.com, you're scaled across the world, and you got to distribute 1.5 gig across every server in your infrastructure in order to you know, get your latest version out, right? So they were using this uh, really cool idea of using BitTorrent to distribute everything. Hmm. Um, now, specifically as it relates to the 12-factor thing, one thing where I was trying to remember was that, like, where was it that... Uh, you know, the whole process to, to 
to put out that version of Facebook was like uh, 15 minutes or 30 minutes in total. Right. Um, but I thought I could, I couldn't find it, but I thought there was a part where it talked about like, as the developers were working on their, their fix. Right. And maybe I'm thinking of an Amazon story, but like they could, they could push out their fix right then and there as soon as they committed the ticket or like whatever their ticketing system was. But, um, but while I couldn't find that as it related to the 12 factor, this article still did relate in one way. And that was that, um, one of the factors here was that the authors of the code in, in this graph that Joe was talking about, like the traditional versus the 12 factor, 12 factor app, the authors of the code versus the deployers of the code in a traditional app were different people, but in the 12 factor app, it's the same people. And specifically this article about the Facebook deployments, they specifically talk about like the person who wrote the code that's going out in that deployment, they own it. It's right. theirs. And they have to be around at the time that the deployments are going out. And if there's any problem as a result of their, um, their change, then they are responsible for fixing it. Like they got to, they got to own it. So, I liked that that ownership part of like, hey, if you're willing to if you're willing to write the code, you're willing to commit it and and work on that ticket and put it out there, then you have to own it and see that it goes all the way into production. Right, it makes a lot of sense. Which was really. something I really like yeah. about the twelve factor app because I, I really like that. I nobody, I'm sure we've all been in that situation where, you know, you, you've worked with someone, they write some code, but then they disappear. And it comes time to do a, de- a production deployment, and you know, you don't you don't know like, well, you th- you hope that it's okay because it's in it's in you know whatever your master trunk is, right? But you know when it comes time to deployment deploy it, you know, and you're like, well, how do I even test this thing? Like, what is it? It's it doesn't seem like it's working, and you can't find this person. Like, that's a problem. And so I really liked the ownership part of it, and the fact that the twelve factor app specifically called it out as. You wrote it, you deploy it. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense because if a problem does come up, if you're intimately familiar with it, you know exactly where to go, right? I mean, it's, that's a big deal. Yeah. And not only that, but you might also be aware of like, maybe there are issues that are, um, how to, how to say this, like acceptable, you know, issues, edge cases or something. that someone who's not familiar with it, when it comes time to do the deployment, they might be like, oh my God, this pixel's in the wrong place. And you're like, whoa, 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 time out. Yeah, w- we know that it's two pixels to the right when it should be to the left. And we're going to fix that, right? We already got a ticket for that. In but for right release. now, we don't care. Right. Yeah. And actually, too, this article specifically called that out. Um, and which is why I was, you know, to your point about, uh, um, how did you just phrase that a moment ago when you mentioned... Uh, multiple versions to different clients. Oh yeah, like you have a different uh, version of an app deployed somewhere, then you can't really have development be what production is because you have multiple versions. Like, like specifically in in this uh, Facebook uh, article, they had mentioned that like um, you know reverting back to other versions was for losers, right? <laughs> like you always roll forward, and I I felt like that was really. Like the twelve factor app also kind of falls in line with that too, yeah. right? You know, and I think we've mentioned that before too. Like, you just just roll forward, and you know, fix it there. And so they specifically talked about like when there are those um, acceptable issues, right? That you know, rolling back 
a version that the um, person being interviewed from Facebook in this article made the analogy that rolling back uh, a version would be the same as pulling the uh, the the brake line on the train, hmm. right? Like like you just don't do it. Yeah, you, I will you don't say, do it unless it's an emergency. This brings up a little bit of a side tangent, but hey, I've worked it and with people and at places where like the knee jerk reaction is rollback. And I can honestly say that in probably 95% of the time, that is the wrong reaction. And now you got documentation to prove it's call them out and say they're a loser. Right. Right. (laughs) No, but I mean, in, in all honesty, like if there is a problem, if it's something that's going to bring you down for a day and it's going to affect a lot of, you know, money, then maybe it's something that you consider having a rollback for, right? But if it's something that you can solve in a reasonably quick amount of time, and especially if you're working with engineers you trust and they are involved in the release cycle, then they can probably figure out pretty quickly what's going on. And a lot of times rolling forward is less painful than rolling back. So, you know, taking that extra time. It really time, depends on your infrastructure. It, it can. It can. It can depend on a lot of things, right? Yeah, like what's your deployment infrastructure like? Yeah, Right. But then there's also the argument that could be made, too, that like, you know, an opportunity, like, let's say that uh, Facebook has a bug, right? Well, their monetary bug is going to be more like ad loss, you know, type of right. revenue, right? As opposed Versus to Amazon. Versus if it's Amazon.com. Right then the revenue lost is huge it's because massive. on some potential sales. So, you know, yeah, I just thought it was interesting that they were, that their stance was, uh, you know, roll, rolling backwards for losers. Yeah. And, and again, you just brought up a key differentiator there. I mean, depending on what, what that means to your site, right? Like if you're right. Shopify, you can't have it down, right? Like you're affecting hundreds or thousands of storefronts. You can't screw with that. Facebook, okay, so people can't see what their friend said, you know, 30 seconds ago. But you know who's going to be best to be able to evaluate that problem quickly? The guy who coded it. Yeah, absolutely. So he Always. should be involved in the deployment. Always, yep. So. Yay, 12-factor. All right, so sorry about that. We're coming back from a technical difficulty there. That's never happened. Usually all of the bits from Florida are able to make it up here to Georgia, but for some reason the internets didn't allow that, and so we had to resolve that issue. Yeah. Well, I I think it's more of a problem with Georgia receiving. but <laughs> oh, uh, That's very possible. That's right. <laughs> but but uh, in the interest of keeping things uh, moving right along, uh, I just wanted to say that the key points for me um, is basically just minding uh, the gap here. Um, release early and often, keep the programmers close to operations, and uh, take care to make sure your environments are uh, as close to exact as possible. And, you know, one thing we haven't really mentioned with this, this whole thing we kind of took for granted, though, is um, with uh, this whole 12-factor act, uh, they're, they're really kind of, counting on you being an agile shop like there's no room for waterfall here oh no <laughs> no yeah. Yeah, I, this this requires at what hourly dual every two hour releases that doesn't happen in yeah. waterfall no you can't schedule yeah releases like that i would just be crazy you would have to have like at least 300 meetings before every release <laughs> yeah th- this uh well well you know and, th- and that's the We've talked about this before, at the be- especially at the beginning, where like some of these uh, chapters were okay for like any type of any type of app development, right? And every now and then, 
you can see the tone that was initially set or the intention that was initially set where, you know, like you were saying, it was really for agile environments or for .com type environments. And uh, this is definitely one of those where it's like release often, right? Where, you know, that didn't happen in earlier days of an operating system, for example. No. Where right. It's getting there, though. It is kind of getting there as as the pieces are distributed more modularly. But, yeah, it's been a, a long road. Yep. And uh, speaking of long roads, um, we mentioned this uh, Clearly Tech article um, pretty much with every other step we've done. And uh, basically, they've um, gone through and assigned an importance rating to each of these steps um, that we uh, like to talk about. And uh, so what do you guys think they assigned uh, for the dev prod parody? Okay, I may have cheated. Yeah, yeah. I have now only because of the technical difficulty. Oh, but my original man. answer would have been high. Like I would have thought this would have been high on the on the chain of things that should be, you know, done. I'm high as well. <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised. Th- this one came in as a medium, and I too thought that this one was going to be treated as high, but yeah, they only had it a medium. And their answer was that developers feel will feel like taking shortcuts if their local environment is working well enough, and to talk them out of it and take a hardline stance. And it'll pay off in the long term. But yeah, that just doesn't strike me as the right thing. Like one of the things that we didn't touch on, and I'll just briefly say it right now, is like they said a lot of times instead of using the full blown SQL database, they might use a a SQL Lite or something, right? Right. And that goes back into those same type of problems that you're going to run into that you wouldn't have had if you had been using the same type. Like full thing. text indexing isn't going to be available right, on the Lite right. version. So that I don't know. Medium seems a little bit low for me on this one. But if my uh, if my database is in a cluster, I'm not going to have a cluster locally, am I? Yeah, yeah, you can. You you, you can. can. You could. But I mean, it might be a little bit of work, but I think I think here's where here's where the rub is for me on this one though, is that this chapter there were you know as we discussed there were three distinct parts to this right there was the 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 time the personnel and the tools gap, and in keeping the developers close to the deployment right that whole ownership of it. That is you know, very near and dear to me, very important to me. And so that that was a big part of the reason why I was like, I really want this one to be high. I really want this one to be important. Right? I and yeah, that that's my opinion on it. Yep. But I, I can get well, I can get behind it being um medium. I mean there's there's things I worked on that I just could not have a local environment for like um, SharePoint farms and just like kind of strange environments that I just, I'm not going to be able to feasibly have for a, a small feature. So you basically do as best you can to mock it and uh, hope QA catches any problems. Yeah. But if you've got a QA step, then uh, you're probably not uh, being very uh, 12 factor app, I guess. It's <laughs> not a whole lot of room for that here. So I think this next one, though, I think what we're about to step into, this might be Joe's favorite thing. I, yes. I may be wrong. but <laughs> we're gonna, I, know, I feel I'll, like we're in a, a Ren and Stimpy commercial here for Log. Yeah. No, this is this is one of those things that I, <laughs> like, log. I love. It's Log. It's fun for a boy and a girl. <laughs> it's better than bad. It's good. Yes. <laughs> See, this is this better than bad. It's good. So th- I, didn't, this is basically, I wasn't sure if that was going to go over well. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Oh no, I love log. Everyone should have log. Uh, I mean, you know, it is Star Wars season. You should uh, get one for the for all the family members. 
So, man, let me tell you, I, I love logs and I hate not having logs. And uh, for as much as I hate not log- having logs, I'm terrible about uh, actually having the appropriate level. Um, it, <laughs> it's either it's either too much is logged yep. or not yep. nearly enough is logged. There's never a happy medium there. Yeah, and uh, I've actually been in situations where I was logging too much, and uh, it actually would slow the app down, and so I would do something like, you know, stop stop logging, and uh, things would dramatically speed up. Yeah. So a lot of times, especially if you're running a console and you're actually seeing things printing the screen, it can have a noticeable effect. Oh, yeah. But it looks so good streaming, right? You feel like you're in yeah. the Matrix. That's right. <laughs> Tail log. <laughs> you got like 80 of those going. Yeah. Yeah, like the Whoppers playing its own version of Tic-Tac-Toe by itself as you watch all the logs fly by and it's guessing the random password to launch the nuke. That's right. But uh, they actually had some really cool um, things that kind of set apart um, their advice on logs from kind of traditional or at least what I think of as being traditional. And uh, their big point there was treating logs as event streams and uh, specifically getting away from files. They want you to log to basically your console. So just standard error and standard out. Yeah. You just kind of do your console.log. It's great for your, while you're working on it because you see it right there in your IDE or, or somewhere nearby. And you can do all your sort of file rolling and um, aggregation and streaming and writing the files and file management and rolling logs. All that sort of stuff can be handled outside of your application. Your application doesn't have to know anything about any of that. They said that, but I wasn't quite on board with it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, and I was kind of curious, especially like in the days of like APIs, like a log for net, right? Or a log for J. Like, I'm such a fan of that that I was like, no, wait, why, why do I want to yep. get rid of that and just write it all out the console? So I thought about that actually quite a bit. And one thing that they really emphasize in some of the earlier steps is being able to have like multiple instances of your application on one box. And when you start mm-hmm. doing stuff like that, then it gets hard to have like a, you know, a single place kind of configured for logs. Like you want to be able to, to have this stuff no, right out to different It could just be like areas. an environment variable per instance that would define what the log path was, right? Well, yeah, like have it, give it a GUID or something. And every time you restart the app, it oh like goes Why to a different folder. Well, it sounds like though the difference though is what they're saying is you just log to the standard out, right? And then in each environment, that environment decides what to do with it. So yeah, you're talking like yeah, log they're for talking that about like you know redirecting it, <clears throat> redirecting. If you want to capture that out right. to a file, then fine, you can cap, you, you can redirect standard out or standard error out to you know your right, your choice, file. right? But you do that in the environment. What you're talking about with like log for net or uh, God, what log was for J. Log for J, but there was another one, Logback in oh, Java. Right. Um, so instead of using those libraries to set that kind of stuff up through your app, they're saying, no, you just do your standard out, and then you let the environment handle it, right? And that kind of makes sense to a certain degree because now no matter where you put this thing, you can have that environment set up to to do things a specific way for that environment, right? As opposed to letting your application handle it, which means if you ever want to change how that log is handled, You've now got to redeploy your app. I guess. I guess this is where I, where I took issue with it is that the whole point of the Apache Log for Net project or Log for J project is that based on configuration, you could have different outputs for your logs. So if you want your application to suddenly be logging your uh, to do all of its logging to a database, then you just configure in the in the configuration you configure it to write to SQL Server. Or if you want it sending emails, 
you configure that in the log4net configuration. Or if you want it writing out to a file, or if you want it writing out to the console, or if you want it writing out to console with colors. All or if of you that, want to do all of them at the same time, it can. Yep. But, but all, yes, yes, you could. Yeah. But all of that was configuration driven. Which doesn't break the 12 factor thing. Either. Well, but here they're saying. Don't do it. But here they are. Yeah, no. Because here they're saying write it out to standard out or standard error. Right. And so there's only the one output ever. And so you just hit on one where, like, if you wanted to write it out to a console, if you're running it by console and you wanted to write it out to a file, or if you want to write it, like, you could only have the one choice right. with the, with this option that they present. Yep. Although um, you can have a like a console appender, basically. So you can run through something like log4j and still have it just write to console. And then you get all the benefits of having like the different levels of logging, like debug or info. And you can still have the nice timestamp and formatting. Um, and you still end up writing the standard out. Yeah, this one's it, this is an interesting take on it. Like, I, I don't know that I'd throw away log back or, or log for net or any of those because they do add. And like you said, it's configuration driven, which... I don't remember which one part of the 12 factor app was. They were like, Hey, things should be config driven so that you can just change a config. Right. It was chapter three. Yeah. So, so I, I'm maybe, I don't know. I I can't think that that these kind of libraries didn't exist when they did this. I'm not real certain. Maybe, maybe it also has to do again, consider the source. It might also have to do with speed though. If we think about it, if all you're doing is writing to standard out, there's really no, there's no drag on your application. It's now on your environment as opposed oh, to no. the Oh, no. There's a drag on your application if you start writing out a standard out while it's in the console. Yeah, there's totally a okay. drag on it. But, but but it depends on how you set up your environment to do it, right? There's there's no overhead in your app is what I'm saying. You, you, you get what I'm saying? So if you have a log for net, there's, there's a bit of overhead because it's now managing how your logs get written. And that kind of information. Yeah, but but I guess the point that I'm I'm trying to make though is that like you know you rely on those kind of third party libraries because they're already trying to optimize themselves for uh, when should I flush to disk or when should I not you know things like that versus if you're just doing a simple redirection then you're losing some of those performance efficiencies that that third party API might have been. Uh, doing for you in addition to the flexibility of, okay, let me also have the logging send out to an email on certain conditions. Right. Right. You know, so, so that's all lost. But they have Logplex and Fluent that they mentioned, which I'm not familiar with either one of these things um, for Heroku. So I would imagine that these kind of do the same type thing, but. um, Well, and and this is why I was like, uh, this is why I was saying consider the source is that, Okay, so you know we're we're getting close to the end of the year here, and you know as part of getting close to the end of the year, it's going to be that stupid resolution time. And yes. last year, at this time, I had said, you know, hey, I should probably like take the time and put in the effort to learn Rails, and I never did. But <laughs> the guys at Heroku did, and so so I don't know if maybe. Maybe that's where they're coming from is that you know, maybe they don't have – I mean, I, I would find it crazy that there's not a, you know, a good logging package out there, but maybe there isn't, and that's why they were saying like, hey, in our experience, we've just found it best. You know, Even that there might be some third-party uh, you know, logging packages out there, just go to standard out and be done with it. 
I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, I don't know. It, it, like I said, I wouldn't stop using Log4j or Log4net or Logback or any of those because they add that, like we said, right. they give you the ability through configs to set up something that, that you can easily change and stream to multiple places, which might be a performance hit, but you could do it. So, so starting tomorrow, we're going to document the 11 factor app yeah. <laughs> 11.5 with no logs that's right no logs <laughs> well I, at least we we can all agree that um they're right on about uh treating logs as event streams yeah right and whether that means log for j or console uh your sorry uh, standard out then you know that's another point yeah yeah it, it should be you should be able to retrace what happened. That's the whole yeah. point of them. Well, if if because they made the point about you know letting some other tool route the logging and and to not clutter up your app with log man with the file management of the log. So if by that they include the third party app, then or I'm sorry, a third party library like a Log4j or Log4net, then you know yeah. Um, okay. One of the notes that we had here that I think is truly relevant and people that aren't aware of them. Uh, hopefully this will come up for you eventually, is if you have multiple servers, especially like in this 12-factor app, right? Like the whole point is to be able to scale horizontally. And so now you have logs potentially going to multiple different places, right? You, you don't necessarily want to have a shared server because you can't scale that properly. So you might have logs across 30 different servers. Well, in order to actually be able to use or that, if you're Netflix, you might not know how many servers. You yeah, have. yeah, it's they literally scale those up and down. You know, once every couple of days, it, you know, several an hour, and they only stay alive for a day or two. Um, so these files may be all over the place, and even if you have a small web app that you might be hosting internally at your at your own company, even trying to go across five different servers to try and aggregate those logs is is frustrating right you need something like splunk or log stash which are set up to be able to suck in these logs and and aggregate them together so they bring them all into one searchable spot so splunk is amazing splunk is if pretty, you're not using splunk I, I i can't say log session because i've had no experience with it unfortunately but splunk is amazing yeah, here here's an example though that you didn't mention though like in your in your uh, you know you have the multiple servers and you're trying to like aggregate the data across all of them. What about in the case of like security problems? Oh yeah. Right. Like you're trying to trace a potential security uh, vulnerability or, you know, a potential, um, you know, intrusion, right? Like if you have in number of servers yep. and you have to go through each one of them independently, you'll never that'd find be a it. nightmare. Yeah. So, so having it aggregated together in something like a Splunk is, very helpful. Yeah, and not to go too far into it. I mean, that it it really is amazing software. Uh, again, it's not super cheap, but you can even have it do things like alert you for like what you're talking about with a security thing. You have it look for particular events, and you can actually have it send an alerts out if it finds something. Right. So, <clears throat> pretty amazing stuff. I also have not used Logstash, so I'm not sure how well it fits in. But, um, you know, another popular solution out there. Yeah. Yep. So what do you think about the importance rating for this one? Well, first of all, what do you think that uh, Clearly Tech gave it? Probably something I won't agree with. <clears throat> I, right. I mean, I gotta say, I gotta say logs are high, man. 
I, like, how could you not have logging in your environment? I'm between medium and high myself because, especially for a production type environment where you're not typically allowed to get hands on into like data and that kind of stuff, how else are you going to retrace the steps, right? In any yep. kind of meaningful way. And that's why, I, I guess, depending on the type of environment, this would definitely either be a medium or a high for me. Well, okay, so retracing the steps from a debugging perspective, but if you're any kind of a financial, whether yeah. it be a bank or an e-commerce, I would imagine that you pretty much have to for regulation purposes. Yeah. Right? Like, it's not an option. Not you know, not having a log isn't an option. Well, I mean, think about if you're wiring money, right? Like, you, you need to know every step of the way exactly what happened. Now, whether or not well, some that's of that stored might be in a database, yeah. elsewhere, it might be I, I meant like more connectivity type of tracing. Mm. Right. You know, like IP addresses that were coming in. You know, like like things that you might find in a typical vulnerabilities log, and right? stuff. Yeah. Well, like one teller is logged in from five different states and uh, running, uh, you know, looking up customers at a rate of like. 10 per second or yep, something yep you know yeah so so that's what i'm saying like I, I view this as like it's a high i don't see how it could not be yeah i, I um, guess you're probably going to say I, this is why i said like you're probably going to tell me it's an answer that i don't agree with Jeff. yep uh they have as a low what and uh the reasoning is basically uh if you are um just reading this from the site if you are relying on logs as a primary forensic tool you are probably already missing out on better solutions be sure to consolidate your logs for convenience, but beyond that, don't worry about being a purist here. Hmm. And they're not saying don't log, and they're not saying don't aggregate, but I think that they're basically saying don't rely on logs as your primary means of debugging, um, which I, I still don't agree with, really. But, uh, you know, I, I definitely, I, I can't see this being any lower than a medium. Yeah, that, that's what I said. Like, depending on the the circumstance that maybe a medium's fine but i i can't see it being any lower than that <laughs> i kind of find it interesting that like in the example that i gave and then the forensic tool was one of the uh, you know their choices yep. of wording in that that's uh that's interesting yeah but you know if you th if you take it from the the perspective of uh duh of course you have logs um but whether or not it's written to standard out then i could see them kind of grading this lower and getting away with it but um, definitely logs are wonderful. And if you've uh, ever, and I'm sure you have, if you've been programming for any length of time, dealt with a situ situation where you don't have any logs or you don't have good enough logs and all you have is, uh, you know, it's broke, figured out, and you can't reproduce the problem, uh, then you know how horrible that is. Right. All right. So that's it for logging. And uh, now it's time for our call to action. So um, we would love for you to leave us a review if you haven't already. And um, the reason is it's basically... Um, our primary way of finding new listeners. Uh, it's really helpful to us and it's been helpful and we would love for it to continue being helpful. So we really appreciate it. And uh, also, um, if you already have leave it, left us a review, please feel free to uh, share the podcast with uh, your coworkers or friends. Yeah, and uh, you can leave us a review by going to www.cuttingblocks.net slash review. We made it real easy. So... Um, you can leave it on your platform of choice, iTunes, Stitcher, and we don't know of any other ones. If anybody does, that'd be awesome if they told us, but I don't know where any, any other review Some, places someday, are. Someday we'll finish getting up on uh, SoundCloud. Yeah. Did someday. you mention Overcast? No, I have not. I have not. Overcast? Uh, well, uh, I don't know. There's all yeah. kinds. Yeah. There, Player there's Overcast, Player yeah. FM, Stitcher, iTunes. Yeah. We're all over the place. SoundCloud. Yep. 
SoundCloud not quite as fully as others. But yeah, one day I'll finish uploading the rest of those episodes. <laughs> All right. This episode is sponsored by Infragistics. Experts in data visualization, Infragistics developer tools drive custom app development for any data visualization scenario on any platform. And Report Plus is an enterprise-ready, self-service BI dashboard solution that opens up your enterprise big data for end-user consumption. Head over to Infragistics.com and get your free trial today. All right, so before we head into this last last chapter of the 12 Factor, I wanted to have a little bit of fun here um, because... We didn't mention the polls, and we've had two episodes since this last one, and I thought, you know, this would be kind of interesting, right? Because, once again, we forgot to mention, like, you know, or even think of, like, what a poll could be for this episode, but when we do that, and I happen to be the guy in charge of putting the show notes together, I'm like, well, I'm going to have fun with it. So, in episode 34, I would said, well, why do these guys keep forgetting to think up a survey? And the options were... Call of Duty Black Ops 3, Destiny the Taken King, or Halo 5 Guardians. Now, because I'm sure that you guys didn't cheat, and don't you dare do it now, Alex. I'm not looking. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> All right. What do, you, what do you think? What do you think it is? Call of Duty, Call of Duty. Destiny, or Halo 5? Our list, Call of Duty. Our listeners, I'm going to go with Destiny. Wow. Really? Yeah. Wow. From left field. Well, Joe is right. Oh, was, see, that's what I prefer. <laughs> 54.5% Call of Duty Black Ops 3. Very nice. And they wouldn't be wrong. That's that's the thing. All right. I haven't bought the game yet. Oh, my God. So, well, okay. I felt I felt a little bit lied to about the, um, about the zombies campaign. Because I don't remember if I read it or watched it. I definitely think I had some conversations with, like, local, you know, like, uh, you know, GameStop store, but I, there was supposed to be like a whole campaign mode for zombies that was supposed to be more like the traditional campaign or like, you know, the gameplay was supposed to be like a normal campaign. I really didn't feel like it was. I felt like, I'm like, what are they talking about? This is like the same exact type of zombie campaign in terms of gameplay as like what you had, for example, in advanced warfare. Right. So like redoing monotonous shooting zombies, trying to get into the house type thing. You're definitely thinking of like older zombies. Okay. Then, then current that turned me off forever. But what I'm saying is that like in, okay, let's, let's narrow it down just to black ops three and, and advanced warfare. Since those are the most recent ones, both of those versions, if you were going to do the, um, a quote campaign in, the zombie mode, then you would start from the beginning and it's kind of like super Mario brothers. You either get to the end with your set amount of lives or you don't. And you start over, right? It's not like the campaign mode in, you know, the normal campaign mode where, you know, you're like, Hey, you know what? I want to stop here and call it a night and I'll come back to it. It's not like that. Right. It, It, unless I miss something, but, that's no. Fun. I was kind of disappointed in that because I because I was hoping for like you know a multiple storyline, but yeah. And I will say, I don't know. Like, have you played it, Joe? Have you played Black Ops Three? Nope. No. Okay. The one thing that Advanced Warfare really had that I so badly miss in Black Ops Three, and I can't believe they took it away, was the firing range. Like as you're 
you know, putting your gun together, you're customizing it, you're putting on like, you know, what sight you want on it, the the grip you want on whatever whatever options you want to to customize your weapon, right? You then just go over to the firing range, try it out, see if you like it, you know, and then go shoot people in multiplayer, right? You can't do that in Black Ops 3. It's like old school where, you know, you don't know how the gun's going to perform until it's too late and you got a bullet in your face. I never did the firing range. Really? I always went straight into battle, dude. Really? <laughs> I was like, I got this gun. Let's go use it. <laughs> no way, man. That was, that was like, especially, no, it's, but, uh, especially but, once you got royalty on the gun and you're like, oh, cool. What does this look like in gameplay mode? You know, I would jump into the firing range and, and just spin around like, oh, this is hey, what it's going to look Jim, like. Cool. Let me go ahead and break this down for you, though. So so we were at a place the other day, and, and they have a oh PS4 God. sitting there. Oh, right? God. What's happening? And they have some controllers, and they have uh, Black Ops. Advanced Warfare. Advanced Warfare. All right. So, so most normal people, a.k.a. me, you, we'd sit down. We'd be like, all right, let's grab one of these built-in classes, and let's rock. Right? Oh, my God. Dude. Like fifteen Nobody. minutes later, I was, was snoring. I was snoring beside <laughs> Outlaw, as he's over there setting up his class. He's picking out no the right way, grenades. Man. He's setting up his score perks, dude. Like uh, I'm like, dude, it, he's exaggerating. Dude, are we playing today? Or Joe, are, totally like, do I need to come back later? I, maybe I need to hit a bio it, break. I'll, it, I'll be back. <laughs> I know what I know what gun I want and what options I want. It was more like maybe two minutes. Dude, he even spent time like molding the person's face. Like oh, it, it, it took forever, God. man. I mean, you so know that that is one of the who voted. that is one of the cool things about advanced warfare. Is you do get to like pick your outfits. Dude, I'm not even kidding. So you got to dress him appropriately. I went and played a game of ping pong and came back and was no. still waiting. That that never happened. That never happened. Uh, but you oh, know man. what did happen was Advanced Warfare. Uh, and I forgot how much I loved that game, though. That game's fun. Like, when we played that game for the few minutes that we were there, it Well, we it could totally, have been playing for, like, 30 minutes. Oh, my God. But it, it, <laughs> but it totally made me think, like, you know, because at first, I, like, I think I wanted to like Black Ops a lot more than I did, but it has definitely grown on me since. But, like, you ever have that thing where, like, you don't want to be that person who doesn't like change, right? <laughs> yeah. But sometimes you find yourself, you're like, oh, man, why? Did, I don't like that they changed it. Why did they do that? And then you kind of step back and you're like, whoa, you're that guy that suddenly doesn't like change. And and so you try not to be. But I, I really wanted to like Black Ops 3, and then I kind of was like, eh, but I really so liked Advanced Warfare. Why can't this be exactly like Advanced Warfare and just call it Black Ops 3? But now it's kind of growing on me. Uh, yeah. You know. So uh, I think the key takeaway here is if you voted for Call of Duty, you were right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You were, you were totally you were totally right. And uh, so then there was the um, episode thirty five poll, which again we didn't have a survey for it, so it must have been somebody's fault. <laughs> so your choices were: it's Alan's fault, it's Joe's fault, or it's Michael's fault. It was definitely Michael's fault. Really? Yeah, it, it, absolutely. <laughs> All right. What do you think, Jeff? Uh, I I'm gonna say Michael's only because oh sometimes God. people seem to confuse me with Michael. <laughs> what? Were we right? So okay, <laughs> he's not gonna answer us. So I want to have a talk with you, dear listener, right now. <laughs> that means we were right <laughs> because more than forty six percent picked me. 
then it was my fault that there wasn't a survey. Uh, and you know the funny thing is, is that like at first, as the survey when the survey was out and the votes were coming in, like I I was kind of like chuckling to myself because I was the one that put the survey out there. And initially they were coming in as, as either like all Alan or all Joe. And I was like, oh, this is kind of funny. None of them have been for me yet. <laughs> <laughs> and then they all started coming in for me. Well, that was because nobody had listened yet. They had only downloaded. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. Why Why me? Like, uh, who, who do you think came in last then out of that one? Me. Really? You? Yeah, you think me. so? Me. No, it's wow, Joe. You're, Joe's you're a nice happy. guy. It's, it's Joe. I'm going to say just me because whenever something is, is wrong, they tend to blame uh, my wrongness on you somehow. On me? Yeah, I, yeah, I so think like it was my levels Joe. are bad. It it like gets attributed to you for some reason. Joe's like the nice guy. I think Joe needs to say his name like right now. <laughs> <laughs> this Hi. is Joe. Hi. I am Joe. Hi, my name's Joe Zach. <laughs> I think I think before before Joe says anything from now on for the remainder of the episode, every time that he's about to say something, he should say, "This is Joe." This is Joe. Yeah, yeah. yeah so so Joe was uh, only twenty three percent. He was he was in last. Oh, that means yes. I wasn't too far above him. I was like 26, yeah, you're 26. In the middle. Yeah, yeah. But by, by I didn't like that I had such a commanding lead. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, you doubled <laughs> us up, man. That that <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Uh, that's a, that's amazing. Thank you, listeners. Yeah, yeah. I, I really appreciate that, guys. Thanks. Uh. So you're welcome. <laughs> All right. So now let's get into the last chapter of the twelve factor app which is admin processes. All right. And um, basically the deal here is to uh, run admin admin or management tasks as one-off processes. And uh, what they're really talking about here is basically keeping these associated with the application and um, keeping it in line with that uh, dev prod parity, or I guess it's kind of like a prod prod parity, but basically keeping this stuff with your application so that it stays in sync. If you've ever been somewhere that had uh, shared code deployed to like a separate server for tasks, then you know the pain that uh, they're addressing here. And it's basically like you put out a new version of your site, but you forget to update the tasks or vice versa. These things just get out of sync if you don't uh, take great care to um, keep them together. But if you're running these tasks as kind of like little, um, you know, maybe scripts or something in the, the directory of your web root, then you can kind of keep this stuff all together and this stuff can be a website or be used to uh, run these uh, these little one-off processes. Yeah, I mean, a true story behind this, like what you were talking about, having a shared environment where you just have these things run, it is so easy for something to have been running perfectly for a year. Your app is now, you know, umpteen versions later and now you need to update this thing. Basically, that code base that was there a year ago no longer exists. And so now it's a major effort, right? Like, you have to go update this thing again. You have to go... It, it, it can become a bit of a pain. So, like, this whole thing running it, off, uh, running it off the same code base is what you've got out there now and keeping it with the app. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yep. So, if you've got something like, say, you've got a search engine or something, you've got... Uh, you know, a process that generates a feed every so so often, then um, you want this process to be in sync with the shared code for your, say, website. And uh, if you've ever been in a situation where you like you up the, update the website and the feed breaks or vice versa, then uh, yeah, it sucks. Yep. I think the one the one part that I got maybe mm, 
stuck on in 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 this chapter though was that there's this line where they say that the 12 actor app strongly favors languages which provide a read eval print loop and i was like well that's kind of an unfortunate statement like why why does it need to favor that in order for all of these other great chapters to uh you know to 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 adhere to all these other great chapters to be a 12 factor app why is that necessary and and i still i don't know that i ever came up with an answer for that at least in my so own it- yeah, to me, it's like, um, you know, I, I understand why it'd be nice to kind of have a, a shell right there that you can interact with your shared code uh, kind of, you know, in real time. And uh, I understand why you, you know, what's like a traditional static language like Java or C Sharp, why you wouldn't want like an executable or a jar there that you'd have to, you know, build and interact with. But uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't like this. Um, to me, you know, I, I don't know of any static languages that have a, a REPL really, at least not a useful one. Um, so yeah, it's, it seems kind of like a, a hacky thing to say, like, why should I be interacting with a REPL in production? Yeah. I mean, and that's another good point too. I feel like if you're in production, you probably, you know, especially if you're, if you've gone the way of the 12 factor app, then chances are all of these boxes being spun up should be automated. You're not even touching these. So the fact that why would you even be logged into a box to be in one of these uh you know read about print loop shells you know, at all right yeah I, I do get that it's faster to be able to say just in a little script file you know import the libraries i need and do these three actions compared to c sharp where you have to create an executable and there's going to be an app config and you know stuff like that is just kind of annoying to deal with but uh, yeah, I, I'm not crazy about this one, and I uh, I think their uh, their kind of the website bias is showing through again. Well, and and you know the the language choice, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I did like that. Um, I think I read it somewhere on one of these where it was saying that in this section too that you know these scripts would be deployed along. They would be part of the code base and deployed along with it. So like every box. You know, if you had one of these uh, admin scripts, right, for example, then, you know, every deployment got that script, right? So they're all at parity with one another, right? Yep. Yeah, and it's true. You know, even by saying REPL, I definitely feel like uh, I hear that a lot more for Ruby. Like Python, you know, I hear like interactive shell. And even for JavaScript, you don't really hear people talking about REPL. Well, and that's why I keep referring to it like, you know, spelled out rather than saying it like that, right? Right, like, you know, a read eval print loop, for, so that you know, f- for those that aren't familiar with it, that have never experienced it, but basically, okay. So, I guess in fairness, if you haven't, what we're talking about there with a read eval print loop is, let's say that you were to just type in, let's say you're a Perl developer, and, and you would normally type in Perl and whatever your script name is to execute it, um, unless you're on a Linux environment, which we'll forget. You know, <laughs> maybe maybe you have you know the the at the at the top of the script you have the uh interpreter listed there but let's forget about that for a moment you might just say like pearl and then your script name and to execute it but in uh a read eval print loop you would just type in pearl and then it would enter into a pearl uh shell environment where you could enter in you know pearl language constructs and it would execute them there right you could do python the same way right like there's there's several of these and 
But languages like C Sharp, for example, are not going to be one of them. Java is not going to be one of them, right? Yep. And I mean, there's there's hacks in place. You know, there's tools that you can use to kind of have REPL-like environments. And you know, I, I know there's like C Sharp script and um, you know, source stuff like that. But that stuff isn't really common. It's not the kind of stuff that you're going to have uh, hanging around in production. Yeah. But I just thought the the REPL thing was interesting and uh yeah, not too fond of that sentiment. Yeah, it, like I said, it I it may have just been me. I don't, I don't know about, you know, for you two, but it definitely like once I read that part I was like just sidetracked. I'm like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. Uh, lost all train of thought. <clears throat> Squirrel. <laughs> so, yep, um and clearly tech.com uh, they had a nice little snippet here. I was going to read um and basically the idea is that usually a developer will run these sort of tasks and when they do they should be doing it from a machine in the production environment that's running the latest version of production code. And uh, they should be doing that um, instead of, uh, you know, from a local environment or something like that. And, and an example here, I think, is like something like clearing the cache. You know, these are developer-oriented tasks, things that you might want to do just kind of, you know, right now or if there's some sort of problem or something. Uh, and so you know, I like the idea that I can kind of, um, you know, uh, SSH into production and, you know, kick off a script and, uh, you know, so it's cool. And I like that uh, you don't have to worry about the code being out of date like you do if you have separate deployments. And I like that there's basically one code base instead of like separate installation types for things that do tasks or things that run websites. Yeah, again, I guess it's like the frame of mind that you're in as you're reading it. Because like I said, that that one section or, you know, that one mention about the, the REPL definitely threw me off. And then there was also, like I said, too, this other frame of thought that I was in where it's like, if I'm thinking about this from the point of view of a app that is, let's think about like a cloud-based app, right? If you're thinking about a cloud-based app that's going to uh, scale up or down based on demand, right? Then that should be completely automated, Right. Mm -hmm. No one is going to be SSH into any one of these boxes. Right. They shouldn't, you know, that access shouldn't exist for them. They shouldn't even know, you know, what boxes it's like that. That's not even something that should be happening if you're in that kind of environment. So then why do I need these admin processes there that I'm going to be SSHing into to execute that I need this read eval print loop for? So I guess where I'm going with that is that in the clearly tech from an importance point of view, like I kind of ranked this one as low. Yep. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. The biggest issue for me is basically the, the prod prod parody issue where you have different, um, different uh, install locations and therefore different versions of code that are possibly running your tasks. But aside from that, you know, I feel like if you if you do have a separate kind of install location for tasks and separate locations for your websites, you will get bit. But um, maybe not so often, and maybe it won't matter that much. So I think this one's a, a low to medium. That's where I fell on this one, because to what Outlaw said, like if if you've got fifty of these things spun up, should a developer really be logging in and running these scripts? I could see if you had like some sort of chef thing to where it kicked them off when it got spun up, but that's not the whole point of this REPL loop, right? Like the the whole point of that was so you could get user feedback, and then that doesn't really make sense. So, yeah, I, I would say this one's a low to a medium. 
Yeah, and, so uh, they I'll, have I'll a, buy that with the especially with the chef from Puppet kind of example where yeah. you know you're you're wanting to script out you know what the what the configuration of the system is and you want to you want some tasks that will be executed as part of maybe that that you want to uh, the coincide up. with the version. Yep. So they should all be deployed to every instance yep. and be part of the code base. So I agree with that. So yeah, I'll stand by low to medium. Uh, they give it a high. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, but uh, their reasoning. <laughs> no, like literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like this last step is kind of a fizzle. I wish logging was the last one. Oh, <laughs> but uh, we should have swept. It. We should have swapped it. Swift it. We, we should have swept it. We should have swept it around. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, their reasoning, though, is basically saying having console access to a production system is a critical administrative and debugging tool, and every major language and framework provides it. So no excuse for sloppiness here. I disagree. Having console yeah, kinda, access to a production system is a crazy. critical administrative and debug. Like no. Especially with REPL, you can really mess stuff up, you know, if you uh, accidentally, uh, you know, run a uh, delete operation or something. Well, that's the greatest chance of where you're going to have a security hole. Yeah. If you're allowing, oh, yeah, like, true. you know, production access, console access to your production system, there's your greatest chance for, for being hacked. Yeah. Like, that should be locked down. Yep. Hmm. So... And yeah, so yeah, I I'm actually back consider logging into production and uh, <laughs> modifying things uh, via REPL. Uh, I, I consider that kind of sloppy. So yeah, I'm not crazy about their definition here, but I'm not really crazy about this whole factor. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're down to ten factors. Yes, yeah. we've chopped them. I think there yeah. actually might have been a couple others that we didn't quite agree with. But no, that's true. But um, we uh, have gone through all of them. So that's it. Uh, tonight we went over um, dev prod parity, logs, and admin processes. So do you guys have a favorite of the 12? Ooh, good question. Mine was probably the config one. I really like the whole idea of having configs or environment yep. variables set up. That, like, that, the whole, I, I forget, it, I don't even think it was part of the 12 factor thing, but the whole don't commit anything you wouldn't want to accidentally get open sourced. Like yeah. that, that is so like crucial to making sure that you don't have like major security gaps. But I do like the whole, you know, deploy an app that can be, you can change things on the fly without redeploying an app. Like that is huge to me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I like code base too, keeping your, uh, basically your application, each application separate in its own separate repository. Yeah. yeah. I like, that, was I a like good that one. one too. Actually, what I was going to say was like the, the first three chapters started off very strong. Yep. You know, and then, and then, you know, the fizzle kind of came and went, you know, depending on the was, chapter. Yeah. Code base dependencies and config. Um, I also, uh, definitely really was liked... not like port binding concurrency and disposability were like probably my least favorite. Yeah. But, uh, then I did like 10 and 11 a lot. So that's dev prod parity and logs. Yeah. Those are both good. Very good. Yeah. It, yeah, it, and, it was uh, definitely processes. interesting though, and I definitely am thankful that you know they took the time to put that out there because it was it's you know I mean they they're coming from a particular mindset, but a lot of experience in a you know one particular realm of of app development, right? So it was interesting to see like what their thoughts were on you know what made for a good app, and I mean honestly, again, a lot of this stuff translates. Maybe not one-to-one for any kind of development environment, but there's a lot of good practices in here or things to think about at least while you're doing your development. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and I don't, I don't care what they say. A lot of these chapters apply to any kind of app development. Yep. Yeah, and uh, we hope you like this series. So uh, if you did like it, uh, please leave us a review. And if you didn't, uh, send us an email at comments <laughs> at codingblocks.net. Right. Uh, that's where the rants go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, uh, in the resources that we like, obviously, we'll be mentioning the, the uh, Clearly Tech article again. And uh, the 12factor.net site will obviously be in there. Yeah, and um, the, I wanted to mention the Phoenix Project again. It's just basically a, a book with a. It, it's a nice fictional narrative around like a kind of a DevOps transformation. That's uh, it's really fun read, um, and I don't say that often. <laughs> uh, also, I wanted to mention the high scalability blog. We didn't really mention this, but if you want to read some like um, some really great articles about applications that, for the most part, uh, kind of follow this um, this methodology, then highscalability.com is a great place to go. They've got fantastic teardowns of, like, you know, Pinterest and Netflix, and they talk to the guys in charge of those environments and talk about, you know, their high scalability issues, and uh, there's a, just a lot of fantastic write-ups there. All right, so let's get into Alan's favorite section of the show. It's the tip of the week. The tip of the week. Hey, you know what? I decided something. Like, I just made an executive decision for myself here. Oh, my God. Um, You know, it's the holiday season. I'm giving two tips this time because I couldn't figure out which one I wanted to do. So, if you're ever cloning from a Git repo and you need a specific branch and it takes, you know, as long as it does for Outlaw to set up his character class in Advanced Warfare... Oh then my gosh. you don't want to wait around to pull master and then have to switch over to a branch, right? <clears throat> there is a way that you can actually have it just grab that branch. You can do a git clone and then whatever the URL is, then dash B for a specific branch that you're looking for, then a space, and then the branch name, and then do another space, two dashes, and then single dash branch. And it will pull just that one branch down so that you don't have to clone the repo and then switch over to a new branch. Because there are situations to where, like, if there are major divergent or, like, the branches diverged quite a bit from the master branch, it can take forever for it to do those deltas. And especially on a big repo. So, I love this one. I, I used it the other day. It made me smile. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. How are you going to maintain uh, dev prod parity then if you're uh, dealing with multiple uh, different versions of code bases well, that you're supporting? This whole thing that we just did with the 12 factor, that's all fictitional. <laughs> so, that's right. Oh, <laughs> no one ever does fictitious, that. I should say. Uh, so, depending on your, you know, if you are writing a high scalable website like facebook.com, then this stuff is going to apply. If you have. Uh, uh, I mean, just any other kind of apps, then you can only really use part of these. Like if you've got separate installs uh, on premises of uh, websites, or if you're doing desktop software, then uh, you know this stuff is just kind of food for thought. Yeah, it definitely. That that went into the uh, whole multiple versions of things and all that. Um, so the other tip I want to give, and I wanted to point this one out because I've known this one for a while, but the first time that I set up like. Uh, an Angular app, and I did it for a team of people, I didn't really totally understand the NPM install stuff. And I figured this might help, because I know Node's very popular, and so is NPM and, you know, the 5 billion different packages out there. Um, one of the things you can do when you do a an NPM install is 
a lot of people just they'll show on the directions or in the tutorial npm install dash g and then whatever the whatever the library is whether it be gulp grunt something like that <clears throat> well what they fail to mention is okay if you're setting this up for a team of people that are coming behind you and they're going to need to be able to get their environment set up pretty quick that does nothing for them what you need to do when you're setting up your app, if you are doing npm installs and your and your application needs this library to be able to run the application on your development machine or to be able to run it when it's deployed somewhere, you do an npm install and then dash dash save. That will make it a dependency for your project. So the next person that comes in, they can just, as long as they have node installed, they can say npm install. And it will go and get all the dependencies, bring them down, and then you can run it. Now, if it's a development dependency, something that you actually need to be able to do your development, you need to be able to get into the code, then you do an npm install dash dash save dash dev. And then that will put it into a different place. So these all go into your packages.json. If you don't push put dash dash save or dash dash save dash dev, then the next developer that comes, they have to actually know to go out and get all these different packages that you did, as opposed to being able to just say npm install and then everything being done. So if you're setting something up to where a team of people are going to be working on something and you want to make it painless for them, make sure you use the dash dash save or the dash dash save dash You mean dev. you're not going to take the approach that you had to suffer through that pain and so should they? I try not to do that. Oh, okay. Well, you're oh. a nice guy. Yeah, like I said, I feel I feel kind of giving right now. <laughs> awesome. Um, and uh, I, uh, speaking of giving, um, <laughs> uh, I'm more of a taker, and so uh, I'm going to steal a tip from one of our listeners. Uh, and we've mentioned him before, um, Jeff Bolina. He's awesome. Knows a lot about SQL, and he turned me on to SQL Century uh, Plan Explorer. And Plan Explorer is free. Unlike uh, the rest of SQL Century's tools, which cost a small fortune, um, but it's basically like um, uh, it, it lets you do a lot of things. But um, the, how I've been using it or starting to use it is basically for um, for execution plans. It's just got a really nice explorer. That, um, it like highlights the trouble spots. Um, it lets you see like CPU, CPU and I/O numbers. You can zoom in and out. You can um, share plans with other people. But just the color coding is really nice because I don't know a lot about. Uh, you know, execution plan and um, basically soon, SQL tuning. So it's nice to have something that kind of points me in the right direction a little bit better than your normal kind of uh, SQL server execution plan. Hey, in all fairness, I will say, though, he said SQL Century, like uh, all their tools cost a small fortune. Yep. I don't know of any database tools that don't. Like Redgate's up there, SQL Century's up there. Like I, I don't know any that, that you basically don't have to mortgage a child for. So, you know, yeah. you know. MySQL, all the things. <laughs> right, there you <laughs> go. All right. So, uh, I uh, will, in the spirit of the Star Wars season, also give you two tips. And uh, the first one is a WebStorm-specific one. So, I found myself in a situation where I was going through a, how would you phrase it, a manual refactoring effort. Uh, where instead of, you know, for whatever reason, I, I needed to do the cha the name changes um, myself rather than allowing the tool to do it. I don't remember why, but once once I was done, I was like, you know, I really wanted a nice way to verify that I was done. Or um, And so initially, 
I guess the the Unix side of me was like, oh yeah, no problem, man. I'll just uh, hop over to uh, my my console over here, do a little find action, pipe that over to uh, an Xargs, do a grep on that, and search for all my uh, all instances of this particular string. <clears throat> Only I was on Windows, so Sigwin. So uh, yeah, you know there was totally that option, and and being a true um, Git bash lever that I am. Of course I had Git bash, which could do similar things, but even in a SIGWIN environment, you know, um, if you like me have tried to do these type of situations where you're, you're going to, uh, pipe all the find results out to XRGs and, and, uh, pass that over to grep. Then sometimes the spaces in the directories will throw it off um, XRX and it'll start piping, it'll start passing off like each uh, different token, uh, space delimited token as a as a separate argument to uh, uh, whatever you're trying to execute. So it becomes a problem. But what I noticed, which was fantastic, is that in WebStorm, let's say whatever your directory path is, you can right click on the path, okay, and there is a find in path option. Right, and you can give it whatever you're trying to search for in that path, and it'll just go and find if there's any instances of it. And if you want to do a replace right then and there, you could also do a replace in path. So you could search an entire directory tree and find or replace within that directory tree within your IDE. So you didn't have to install like a Beyond Compare or uh, whatever Agent to Rantac. do that. Right, you didn't have to do that. You're staying within your IDE. And for the keyboard lovers, control shift F or control shift R, and you can do your find or your find and replace from within WebStorm. So I thought that was a pretty cool option. Yep. And then as the bonus one, uh, when Alan mentioned Web API earlier, it, uh, it reminded me of a problem that Web API has. So what I'll describe is let's say. You have uh, two controllers, and both controllers have a similar route, right? So in this contrived example, let's say you have a person controller and a company controller, and each one of these things has a name. So you're going to have a method called get name, right? And so what you ultimately want the the path the URL path to look like might be something like API slash controller slash get name, right? And you, typically in Web API style development, you would you know specify the controller in curly braces and let it automatically figure it out for you, right? But this is where it it falls to its knees because it's like, well, wait a minute. These both have get name. How do I know which one is for the person controller and which one's for the company controller? Which, for the love of... It's right in the file. It's inside the person controller. Why can't you figure out that I meant this get name belongs to the person controller? To the person, right. Yeah. Right. So, because ultimately what you're looking for is a path that would be like slash API slash person slash get name or slash company slash get name. But unfortunately, it won't it won't figure that out. Web API won't figure that out. And more frustrating than that is it's not a compile time error. No. It's not even a runtime error, 
Well, kind of a runtime well, it, error. It'll be a 404 when you try to access it, but but you won't get like... Is it 404 or is it 500? No, it's a 404. It gives you a, four, a path not found. Right. It no. won't find the path at all because they'd be like, I don't, I don't know what that is. Uh, so, so it's totally frustrating. So in that case, what you have to do is manually name both. Yep. You can't just name one. You have to name both. So you can't use that little curly brace controller trick. Instead, you have to slay, say in your route, you have to manually specify, you know, like if, again, you wanted it in an API path, API slash person slash get name or API slash company slash get name. You have to manually type that in rather than saying controller and letting the compiler figure it out. Now, one thing we do need to point out with this, though, this is if you're using the action approach to Web API as opposed to like the RESTful methods that I guess Web API is kind of intended for. So this is using action routing. So like when he says get name, um, you know, that would be as if you had an action defined called get name. But yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, I didn't mean that like get as in the verb and the right, name i mean right. the, the name of the path was get name yep but but okay so fine so if you don't like that example another case where people have run into this before is let's say you were trying to make a versionable copy of your api right so you release version one v1 so it's slash api slash v1 slash whatever your controller is slash get name right and now you're like hey you know what we've released version two and version two has some amazing features but we want to be fully backwards compatible so if you want to use version two you just go to api slash v2 slash person slash get name Mm -mm. same thing you got to name them both you would have to name the controller you'd have to fully name that path in order and and this is a web attribute right if i remember right it is an attribute it's an attribute to the method but this is a web api kind of issue yeah, and it will it's make you tear your hair out. Yes. Yeah. It's uh it's aggravating. <laughs> yeah, you'll be like, "Why? It's right there. I don't understand why you're not work why it's not working." Now, if you want to see okay, so it's not a compile time issue unless you are using uh Swagger. Oh, will it pick it up? If you are using Swagger, um which is a way to document all of your web API calls, um and it's pretty cool. And and there's a, a counterpart to that, which is Swashbuckle, which will automatically do all that for you. So if you were using uh, Swagger and or Swashbuckle, then what will happen is uh, that will throw a compile time error because it won't know how to... Or was it runtime error? Actually, I may be mistaken. It would probably be runtime because it wouldn't know how to pick it up, right? Yeah, it doesn't. it doesn't know how to interpret that. Um, I think that's your runtime now that I think about it. Yeah. So, at any rate, manually name them. That was, sadly, the answer. Yep. The not all way. things in C Sharp and .NET are glorious. <laughs> that's definitely one that's yeah. not. Yeah. Mm-mm. All right. So, with that, uh, like we said, that was the last chapters of uh, the 12-factor app, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Uh, dev prod parity logs and admin processes and we hope you have enjoyed them uh, you can check out the previous uh, episodes 32 33 and 35 where we talk about the first nine chapters of the 12 factor app 
Uh, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And be sure to leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you choose to find your podcast. Uh, you know, and let us know what that what that outlet is because we'd like to know. Yep, and contact us with any questions or topics. Seriously, we love getting them and we love answering them. Uh, sometimes we have to do some research, and uh, you know everybody benefits. And it might be a month later. It, it may be a little bit while later, but you know, hey, we we do what we can. Um, leave your name, any preferred method of shout out you have, whether it's website, Twitter, whatever. We'll mention you in the podcast, and definitely please do leave us a review. Visit us at codingblocks.net where you can find all our show notes, examples, discussions, and more. Yep, and send your feedback, questions, and rants to comments at codingblocks.net. And uh, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Vine and uh, everywhere else. Is there anywhere else? Pinterest. Flickr. Do we have any Pinterest codes? Nope. Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) We got the name, though. We need a Slack channel, don't we? We should do a Slack channel.